Hello and welcome to the Spiritual School Bus. I'm Mandy Hecht. I'm an ordained minister with the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada, and I drive a school bus. In Baptist churches and on the bus, it seems like everyone wants to sit in the back. You, however, are invited to take a front row seat on the Spiritual School Bus. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow to the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now we're going to jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat from it, you will certainly die. And now to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. May God bless the hearing of the word this morning. Well, we know that it's fall outside now, and so in the fall we like to return to our uh, overarching story of the Bible. And so today we're back in Genesis to God's first act of creation. And although we're only in the first chapters of the first book of the Bible, we're already getting at the most important biblical themes, setting the stage for a full understanding of a biblical faith. As we listen to the opening stanzas of the Bible, we hear the first notes in the symphony of the way that God deals with God's people. But with a story as familiar to us as this one is, it sometimes is hard to look at it with fresh eyes and to hear what the story is telling us versus what we always assumed it says. And so to do that, I'd like to consider four basic themes introduced by uh, the selection of scripture readings outlined by a commentator by the name of Dennis Bratcher, who says about Genesis, whatever else it may be, it is a story about who God is and who we are as human beings in God's world, how we respond to God and how God responds to us. And so it's to those four themes or questions that we'll turn this morning. But before we begin with those questions, I read the following quote this week from a Cree poet named Billy Ray Belcourt, who said, to love someone is firstly to confess, I'm prepared to be devastated by you. 
And when I read that, I immediately began to think about the scripture in front of us, because the first melody that we hear in our reading today is, Who is God? And that quote almost sums up those first two chapters, and in fact, most of Genesis quite beautifully. As true as the saying is when it's referring to people, it is more deeply and profoundly true of God. The God of love, as scripture tells us, created us. And in these first couple of chapters, we realize all too clearly that this means that God is prepared to be devastated by humanity over and over again. One of the more striking things that comes from this particular story of creation is the intimacy of the God who creates. In Genesis chapter 1, you have a very cosmic picture of God, the God who speaks and creates worlds out of nothing, the heavens and the earth, and orders them and populates the entire earth by speaking words. But in Genesis chapter 2, God gets God's hands dirty, forming human beings from the very dust of the ground. You see the very personal action of God breathing into the human form to impart the breath of life which enables the humans to live. So in Genesis chapter 2, it's less of a cosmic, transcendent God, the God of wonders beyond our galaxy, as we, there's one song that says that. And it's a much more personal and imminent God. In the Psalms, it says, God stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. That's a personal God. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in the book of Acts, God gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's the God of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 gives us a picture of the way God's touch is personal, more like a gardener who plants and a potter who shapes, who is dirt under his fingernails from tending a garden and giving shape to the human clay. And we have that lovely detail almost told as an afterthought in chapter 3. After all the action happens, that the newly enlightened man and woman hear the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So this is a God who walks in the garden, looking for the people he's made, desiring relationship with the human pair. A God who forms, who plants, who breathes into, who gives good things, who's willing to be devastated by his creation. That's the picture that emerges from these opening notes of scripture. As we read in Genesis 2, verse 8, Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And when you put it that way, it's a little bit of a wonder, isn't it, that we get so bogged down by the prohibition in this story. Imagine the bounty that God created, the beautiful garden that God planted and then placed the human creature in. How many trees are in this place? Hundreds? Thousands? And all, it says, were pleasing to the eye and good for food, beautiful to look at and delightful to the taste buds. And yet, as so often happens when we begin to talk about the things that we need, We begin to think about the things that we cannot or do not already have. And we can focus on the part of the story that emphasizes the restriction and conclude that God is a restrictive God, a God who withheld something from the humans that he created. But such a view fails to take into consideration the expansive nature of God's permission and provision in this story. 
One writer says that here we need to realize that we have begun to be drawn into the story. It's rapidly becoming our story. For we human beings, even approaching the 21st century, do not like boundaries or limits. Maybe the fact that we tend to focus on that one prohibition, that one forbidden tree, reveals something important about us. We too frequently see God as the God who prohibits, but God is also the God who permits. Why do we not ask about all the other trees that are permitted? Why does this prohibition bother us so? This preoccupation with the forbidden moves to the heart of the story. And as it happens, the preoccupation with the forbidden moves us to that second theme that runs throughout these verses. Who are human beings? Genesis chapter 2 reveals the relationship that we have to the earth from which we are formed. We say in our funeral rituals, and we actually take words from Genesis 3.19, for from dust you are and to dust you will return. We can never fully escape our nature as creatures of dust or clay. The human beings turn their focus to the one thing that is forbidden in the expansive, beautiful, bountiful place that God created for them. That actually sounds pretty human to me. So much so that I understand those who surmise that Genesis 3 is less about explaining the origin of sin and more about describing the reality of what it is to be human and our mysterious human tendencies continually to rebel against God, to resist the gracious boundaries and limitations that God places around us for our own good and to desire to be like God rather than thankful creatures of God. We have been from the very beginning, it seems, people who like to reach beyond our limits, more prone to rebel and to wander than to rest in the tender care that God gives to us. However, just as we cannot deny our very humble, very earthly origins, we cannot deny our relationship with dust, we equally cannot deny the imprint of the divine in each person. There is inherent dignity that comes from the beautiful picture of God placing God's own breath in the thing that he has made of clay, and it becomes more than just a thing, it becomes a living being. In Genesis 1, we read, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And here in chapter 2, we see what it is to be created in the image of God, or at least part of that is to receive the breath of the divine breathed into our bodies, enabling us to become living beings. This is what it means to be alive. One of the things that we learn in this chapter is the newly created earth does not have any shrubs or plants, nor does it have any people on it, because on its own, dust cannot live until God gives it breath and life. And so every time we breathe in and we breathe out, we remember the very breath we draw as a gift from God, and it has been so since the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And so these early chapters describe creatures of clay that are failed, frail, and flawed, but they also describe people that carry a spark or a piece of the divine in them as well. And so we cannot quite write off human beings so quickly, even though it doesn't take them very long, or us very long, to fall short of God's intentions and God's dreams for all that God created. The third theme that we hear sounded is this, how do we respond to God? As you know, and as we learn in our reading today, humanity causes problems for God's good creation very early on in the story. The story related in Genesis 3 has been titled The Fall for a Good Long Time, 
and has been incorporated into our theologies as one of the more important events that happens to humankind. Even though our humanity has, or even though humanity was placed in a lush garden complete with vegetation that they are given to serve and to protect, that will provide for their every need, they still manage to overreach and to demand more than they'd been given and to take out the one thing forbidden to them. But undergirding it all, and after considering our reading for this week, I wonder if our primary response to God is not so much one of disobedience, but of distrust. And here's why I say that. You see, the conversation, sparse as it is between Eve and the serpent, has intrigued people for a long time. Just what is it that the snake says that entices Eve and then Adam to go against the instructions that the man Adam received from God's own lips? Well, the snake begins by asking a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, God didn't really say that at all, as the human pair well knows. And Eve responds, we may eat from the trees of the garden. But God did say you may not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And the snake refutes her claim, saying, you'll not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So notice what it is the serpent is doing here. He doesn't immediately suggest that the human being should obey God's commands. He doesn't downplay the fruit that is freely available on every other tree and tell her to look at the fruit on the forbidden tree and insist that it's better than anything else she can see. He doesn't tell the human beings to take the fruit anyway, consequences be what they may. Instead, the serpent, being the cunning, crafty, clever, shrewd character that he is, decides instead to throw confusion on the character of God. He tells the human pair that God has not been totally honest with them, that God maybe even lied to them about what will happen if they eat from the forbidden tree. And some people have read the story critically, taking the way that God is revealed in the story and turned it into a caricature. One writer sums up how this argument works. One might understand God's negative response to the murder of Abel or to the accumulated violence. Both of those come a little bit later in the story of Genesis. But why does God get so angry that they eat a piece of fruit? It sounds like a divine sting operation. Parents know that the one way to get a child interested in something is to tell them they can't have it. God has made the ethically arbitrary prohibition and backed it up with a threat to kill, which in the event he does nothing to carry out. God passes out humiliations, limitations, and frustrations as if they were a dime a dozen, but then makes some clothes for them, only to kick them out of the garden. And God seems to be so self-protective. God wants to keep the knowledge of good and evil to himself, and having failed to do this, God expels the humans, lest they also get to be immortal as God is. So that's how the argument runs. But is this truly the character that is revealed about God in this story in Scripture? Another writer suggests, contrary to this, that maybe God isn't at all like the picture the snake draws. Maybe God truly is generous and creative and loving and desiring of intimacy, but something about humans just can't see him that way. We make up a God that is greedy and rivalrous and more into transcendence than intimacy, a God that is very concerned with maintaining God's status among, above humanity. Christianity is always urging us to trust God, but the God the snake and the human discuss is not really one, this writer says, that I could trust. 
And yet that's the God we so end up often worshiping. He's the real kicker here, actually, is the serpent didn't deceive the humans. He spoke the truth. When they did eat of the tree, their eyes were opened. And it's also true that humans did not immediately perish either. They lived to tell the tale. And so the humans had some sort of incomplete knowledge. But the snake parlays that into the suggestion that God is dishonest because it's God's desire to keep humanity beneath him or lower than him or keep them down. Perhaps even the snake might suggest God is greedy, wanting to keep all of the good things of the newly created universe and not share them with the created ones. And so the real temptation that they have before then ends up being a question of whom they're going to trust, God who created them or the shrewd serpent who's doling out information in his crafty ways. Terence Fratham puts it like this, the heart of what has become a genuine temptation has to do not with deception, but with what the humans will do with the truth, particularly truth about God. At its deepest level, the issue of knowledge becomes an issue of trust. Can they trust that God has their best interests at heart? The humans are left to draw their own conclusion. To whom or what will they turn? To whom or what will they turn? Well, ultimately, as it happens, the humans do not turn to God. They do not go and ask God more questions or find out if what the serpent says is true. And if it is, if there might be some reason why God has given the humans the information in the way that God did in the first place. Will they trust the one who made them and has provided for them or the one who is informing on them? Further, Terence Fratham states that the primal sin then is not disobedience, pride, rebellion, or violence, or even a desire to become like God. It is symptomatic of a more fundamental problem of trust. And isn't that still the temptation for us here and now? We have seen the ways that God's character is revealed to us in this passage. We've seen the intimacy and the care that God lavishes, both in crafting and creating, and also caring for these human beings. We've seen how God walks in the garden, how God desires a relationship with those that he created. And not only do we have the testimony of this chapter, we have the witness of the rest of scripture, where we learn that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and um, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And of course, we know God best through Jesus, who loved us and gave himself up for us, not considering equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. For God so loved the world. And so the final theme that we have before us is the question, how does God then respond to us? The humans have rebelled, have fallen, have failed to trust And they have gone and done the one thing that God has not permitted. So how now will God respond? You know that ultimately the fall, the rebellion, the problem of trusting God, however you want to call it, will finally require the sending of God's Son, which will begin the process of setting things right in the world again. And ultimately it will require the entirely new creation of heaven and earth But there are hints, even early on, of a tenderness and the fact that God will always temper judgment with mercy. One writer contends that this story ends in a hilarious fashion, for ancient Hebrews knew all too well what fig leaves felt like. 
we might say they feel something like number grade two sandpaper. When this grand tale was spun around campfires and in homes, everyone broke out laughing at this point. They sewed what together? Well, I bet those loincloths were scratchy indeed. But of course, that's the point of the story. When human beings think to become like God, they sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness because as we ought to expect, God was all too right about us. And whether our fig leaves are nuclear ones or fossil fuel ones or monetary ones, they remain scratchy fig leaves nonetheless. But the truth also is at the end of the story, God does not leave the humans in their misery with their scratchy and inadequate covering of fig leaves. Instead, in Genesis 3.21, we read that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So even though there is judgment that follows this episode, there is also grace. And so it is that God, when it comes time to walk in the garden with his creation, God is prepared to be devastated by his creation. Over and over again, we see this. As God recreates and sets things right, things continue to go wrong. The God who creates forgives, and human beings continue to sin. Over and over, humanity refuses to trust fully the God of love, the one who created them, and instead goes off on their own and creates their own deity because Moses is taking too long on the top of the mountain, or complains in the desert that they'll surely perish from lack of food, or demands a king instead of wanting to follow God and his prophets, or tries to become like the the culture surrounding them, or fails to listen to the prophets that God sends unless they tell them the things they want to hear, or conspires with an oppressive regime to execute the Son of God. But the God who created us and loves us allows us to devastate him again and again. But for now, the stage has been set. The story is just beginning to unfold. And we'll spend our time this fall with the God who creates, who makes promises and keeps them, and who is ready to be devastated by his beloved creation. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord God, the grand architect of the universe, your design of creation was unflawed, bountiful, and beautiful. And yet we struggle to trust you and your goodness and your good intentions to those you have made. And in our struggle, we devastate you, littering your creation with defects and imperfections. Show us how to not destroy but to create, how not to demean but to uplift, how not to hate but to love, and how to trust so that your creation may be recreated once again. Because we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This has been the Spiritual School Bus. Thank you for listening. For more Spiritual School Bus, visit www.pastormandy.com. This recording is copyright 2020 by Mandy Hecht and may only be copied or redistributed by express written permission. Thank you and have a blessed week. Eternal God and Father, by whose power we, cre- we are created and by whose love we are redeemed, guide us and strengthen us by your Spirit that we may give ourselves to your service and live this day in love to one another and to you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord. Amen. Go in peace.